You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lawrence Stryker, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Physician dysfunction and sexual dysfunction, help is on the way. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. I am Dr. Lauren Stryker, your host, and with me today is Dr. Laura Berman, an Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Psychiatry at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago. Dr. Berman completed a fellowship in sexual therapy with the Department of Psychiatry, New York University Medical Center, and has been working as a sex educator, researcher, and therapist for 18 years. Today, she's going to share her insights as to how we can identify the patient who has sexual issues and help them get appropriate treatment. Now, Dr. Berman, we all know we should address our patient's sexual concerns, but too often we don't. There's never enough time during a typical office visit, and quite frankly, if a patient doesn't ask, it's a whole lot easier to just not go there. And even if they do have the time, many physicians don't even know how to broach the subject of sexual dysfunction or know how to help their patients. So to start with, when a patient comes to see you, how often does she find her way there on her own or that she actually discussed the problem with her physician and was referred to you for help? Well, I think it's really been evolving because certainly when uh, we first started talking about this whole topic of female sexual dysfunction, which honestly really was only probably since the mid-90s, in the beginning, the medical profession was really resistant and hesitant to even address these issues at all or even acknowledge them as being real. There was a whole range of medical resources and literature on male sexual dysfunction, but very little on female sexual dysfunction. So the majority of the women were finding their way to me through their own research and through their own advocacy Mm -hmm. uh, without their physician's help. Now, I just over the past several years, I've seen many, many, many more, and I would say it's probably equal the number of women who find me through having seen me in the media or heard me somewhere versus from doctor referrals. And I'm kind of curious, is any specialty better at it than others? You know, do you get more referrals from gynecologists, internists, family practice? It really ranges. Not only do we get referrals from general therapists who don't really deal with sex in their therapy practices to every field of medicine, even pain specialists or heart specialists. So across the board, pretty much. Across the board. As a practical matter, what is the best way for a physician to broach the subject of sexuality? Should it be part of a written questionnaire? Should we bring it up? How do we bring it up? What what recommendations do you have? Right. Well, I mean, I think in in an ideal world outside the managed care system where you have 15 minutes. (laughs) In our fantasy medical practice. In our fantasy medical world, you would be taking a sexual history, a detailed sexual history, you know, in addition to the gajillion other aspects of a medical history that you're taking. In our typical present-day unideal world, even asking just one question on the intake form, have you noticed any change in your sexual function? And please describe. And then when you're going through that form, 
upon meeting with the patient, you can just say, you know, I noticed you wrote here that you're experiencing some changes in desire. Would you like to address that? And one thing that I've noticed that a lot of doctors will do, especially doctors who are really interested in actually treating and not just referring out, you know, because at that point, if the person said yes, and you spoke a moment about her low libido, you could then say, okay, well, here's a referral to someone who can help you. Mm -hmm. But if you're a physician who wants to address that, then what I recommend is really setting up another separate appointment to really go over everything then. Yeah, that's such a great point because I generally have always said to a patient, are you having any problems in sexual function? And I just like so much the idea of saying, have you noticed any changes? Right, because a lot of women don't really want to acknowledge it as a problem. And they'll even come in thinking they want to bring it up to you, but they chicken out while yeah. they're there or they feel your hurry. Or you it know? becomes one of those hand-on-the-door questions. Right. You know, you're on the way out and all of a sudden they, they just remember, oh, by the way. Right. You know, from, from a patient's point of view, do you think it matters if the physician is male or female? Is she more likely to, to want to bring this up with a female physician? You know, it depends. I think it's surprising. It's been surprising to me as long as I've been doing this how many female physicians, how many women have negative experiences, more negative experiences with female physicians than male physicians. So I don't know that we can assume just because physicians are female that they're going to be empathetic to this issue or able to deal with it effectively. But the most it has to do with is the patient's perception of the doctor's comfort. The number one predictor of a patient not bringing these issues up is actually the belief that they'll be embarrassing the doctor. So what can we do to let them know that they wouldn't be embarrassing us? Well, I think putting a question on your intake form is a really simple way, or even a notice in your waiting room, you know, letting patients know. A big sign that says, we like to talk talk about that. You know, are you having any of these symptoms? We want to know about it. Mm -hmm. Giving those cues that you're open to discussion, that you know it's a real issue, that you don't think it's all in her head necessarily, that you're not just going to, you know, pawn her off on someone else are all going to make her more willing to bring those things up. Now, can you comment on the different types of sexual dysfunction that you typically see in your practice? The four categories that are the most common are, the most, most common is low desire. About 30% of women experience this, and that's lack of thoughts, fantasies, motivation to be sexual. And it can range from sort of just trying to avoid sex, but being a little, you know, relatively receptive when it's initiated, to being averse to sex at all costs. And then there is orgasmic disorder, which are women who either aren't able to achieve orgasm at all or for whom the ability and the intensity of the orgasms have changed. So they're harder to come by and they're more muffled or less intense. And then there are arousal disorders, which are women who complain of lack of sensation, lack of genital swelling, dryness, and then a range of pain disorders, which include genital pain, either during intercourse or sometimes even chronically. And there's a newer category that is not as commonly reported, but doctors will definitely see in their practice, which is uh, called persistent sexual arousal disorder, women who are experiencing a chronic and uncomfortable engorgement in their genitals, which is um, only relieved through stimulation or sex, but it's constant. So they walk around almost in pain. Let's go to the libido issue again, because I think that's why the Persistent sexual arousal is really interesting. We probably don't see a lot of that in our practice, but the libido issues is something that 
come up every single day. And from my point of view, there's an enormous difference between someone who says they had a healthy, wonderful libido and something has changed. And very often I can identify something hormonally or situationally. But what about the woman who comes in and says she's never had much of a libido? Right. You know, it's a, it's a tricky thing because with libido, the trickiest part about libido is that there's so much overlap. Is she having low libido because she just has low libido and when she has sex, it's satisfying and good? Or is she having low libido because sex isn't enjoyable and, you know, the cost-benefit rewards, you know, don't work in favor of having sex? And that's a really important distinction to make, especially when you're looking at treatments, because orgasmic disorder, certainly pain disorder, even arousal disorder will often turn out to be the primary diagnosis and low libido the secondary. Mm -hmm. So that's something that you'll see in women who have had it chronically and also women who have been on hormonal contraceptives from an early age from the time they really started to become sexual, will experience that. And that's, I'm sure you're familiar with the research that has shown that the hormonal contraceptives increase SHBG, which is sex hormone binding globulin, a protein in the blood that binds to testosterone and makes it unavailable for the body to use for things like libido and sexual response. So it limits the free circulating testosterone. So that's another common reason that you'll see in younger women. Often women will have low libido and low testosterone after pregnancy. They call it postpartum testosterone deficiency syndrome. And often it doesn't re-equilibrate. And we also now know that chronic stress will affect testosterone levels because women respond differently to stress than men do. So if they're chronically stressed, their oxytocin levels go up, which Mm -hmm. is the chemical of attachment. And that also increases SHBG as well. Then there's the whole psychological piece because, you know, what I find is that women in general, most women in their 30s and 40s and beyond were not raised to see sex as something joyous and wonderful and a gift in its own sake. They Mm -hmm. kind of saw it more as a means to an end, you know, the way to get the guy or the way to settle down or what, you know, what you just did. And they never really explored pleasure or saw it in that way. So they just sort of did it. And then once they get the guy, the motivation isn't really there anymore to do it. So that's why you see so many men complain, you know, once we got married, sex right, went right. by the wayside. Exactly. Um, so, you know, there's that piece. Certainly if she's been sexually abused or had any kind of sexual trauma, mm-hmm. if she has a lot of guilt or was raised in a very restrictive environment around sex, that will also cause lifelong low libido. That's very helpful. I would like to thank my guest, Dr. Laura Berman, who has provided information that will make a significant difference in how we approach the patient with sexual dysfunction. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker. You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and podcasts, visit ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lauren Stryker. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to ReachMD.com forward slash women's health. So, Rachel, mm-hmm. now that you're past menopause and we've determined you have osteoporosis, I'd like to start you on prescription-only Avista, raloxifene hydrochloride tablets. Why Avista? Well, because it's the only medicine that reduces the risk of osteoporotic fractures and invasive breast cancer in women like you. It's important to note, though, that Avista does not treat breast cancer, prevent its return, or reduce the risk of all forms of breast cancer. Am I really at risk for invasive breast cancer? Based on my risk assessment, you may be. 
Some risk factors for breast cancer include advancing age, family history, and personal history. So even though no one in my family has ever had breast cancer, I'm still at risk for other reasons, including my advancing age? Exactly. And I think the benefits outweigh the potential risks for you. It's the one medicine that treats osteoporosis and reduces the risk of invasive breast cancer in postmenopausal women with osteoporosis. Individual results may vary, of course, but that's exciting news. Exciting? I'll have to take your word on that, doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Avista increases the risk of blood clots. should not be used by women who have or have had blood clots in the legs, lungs, or eyes. Avista may increase the risk of dying from stroke in women at high risk for heart disease or stroke. Talk to your doctor about all your medical conditions. Seek care immediately if you have leg pain or warmth, swelling of the legs, hands, or feet, chest pain, shortness of breath, or a sudden vision change. Do not use Avista if you are pregnant, nursing, or may become pregnant, as it may cause fetal harm. Women with liver or kidney disease should use Avista with caution. Avista should not be taken with estrogens. Side effects may include hot flashes, leg cramps, and swelling. For more information about Avista, contact your Lilly sales representative, visit www.avista.com, see our ad in Good Housekeeping, or call 1-888-44-AVISTA. This ReachMD program is featured on Sermo, a free online community exclusively for physicians. To discuss this program with your colleagues, visit www.sermo.com. That's S-E-R-M-O dot com. When you join, enter ReachMD in the promotion box to receive a $15 Amazon gift card.